0: So once more, Lord, we bow acknowledging you and your authority and your grace, your power, Lord, and your mercy. We come, Father, humbly before you, but hungry to hear from you. And Lord Jesus, you promise those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. And we seek that filling tonight, we seek that blessing. We pray that You'll work deep in our hearts and in our minds and that this will be, Father, uh, a planting of seed that will bear fruit. May we be open to Your truth and receive it as You intend it, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. Haggai, the prophet, five motivational messages were spoken by this prophet. So we began on Sunday 5, messages across two very quick, very short, very brief chapters over a brief period of time, three months, 14 days, if you add it up from the first to the last message. The last two messages happen on the same day, we'll get there, uh, Lord willing, tonight. So again, by way of reminder, on the first of a low, 520 B.C., the first message came, a message of conflict of interest. The conflict of man's interest versus God's interest, that great conflict that is epic that has gone on throughout history. And the question being, are we going to set ourselves about the interests of God, what He desires, or are we going to set ourselves about our own interests? That would solve an awful lot of problems on earth, if we would just align with Him. Three weeks later, on the 24th of Elul, September, the confirmation of His presence. He just said four words, I am with you. And that is the second message. But it's a message that stands alone. It was given specifically by itself to the people through Haggai. The Lord wanting it to be absolutely clear. Not a long message. Just those four words, I am with you. The confirmation of His presence. And then finally on the 21st of Tishri, which would be October, the coming of glory. But just when you thought it was safe to go on to the next message in Haggai... There's more we need to consider tonight. So, picking up with message number 3, the coming of glory. And if you're outlining this, just stay right with the outline. Message number 3, the coming of glory. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the 21st of the 7th month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak." the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? I read over that again after Sunday, and the thought struck me. Why? Why? Why didn't the Lord provide for the second temple to be built as gloriously as the first temple, the temple of Solomon? Why couldn't the temple built by Zerubbabel and Joshua and the exiles, why couldn't it be grand and glorious? It's not like God isn't up to it. Right? I understand Solomon was the wealthiest man who ever lived. I get it. But I also know who provided that wealth. I also know my father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can build a temple. So why is the second temple so paltry, so shabby by comparison to the first temple? I think it's a good question. Thank you very much. (laughs) Was the wealth required for it, just not available at the time? Was it because Cyrus, and we know this historically, Cyrus called by God a friend to the Jew, believed himself to be divinely ordained to commission the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. He really did. So why did he, by written decree, limit the length and the height of the building? Why did he tell the architect, you can only build it so big? Limitations. We have limitations in the new building. Island County said, no more than 500 seats because of your septic system. Why limit it? Why limit the work of God? And yet, Cyrus did that. So it could not be built as magnificently as before. Yeah, go back. Oh yeah, I'm ordained to send you back. Yes, build your temple, but not any bigger than this. Why? I really believe the second temple was exactly the size God wanted it to be. No bigger, no smaller. And the hints as to why are contained in this marvelous third message of Haggai, some things we didn't talk about Sunday. It all has to do with the latter glory of this house. Watch this, verse 4. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, also Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, and notice how many times he refers to himself as the Lord of hosts here, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts six times. He calls himself the Lord of armies, Lord of hosts. This is a God who can get things done. This is a Lord of armies that cannot be overthrown or overrun. And he says over and over, I'm with you, I'm going to do this thing, and I am also going to shake it up. Two enduring Christmas carols borrow a line from verse 7. King James translation, Hark the herald angels sing, and O come, O come, Emmanuel, both intone the words, Come, desire of nations, come. Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, in the King James, I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Now, we're going to walk through this and think through a couple of things here, so be patient with me. But you Bible students know prophecy oftentimes comes first in the form of a sign, or a signal, or even a servant, heralding a greater fulfillment at a later date before the night is through we're going to see that with Zerubbabel a servant of a greater prophecy but before that the greatest example is Jesus himself do you realize that Jesus came and in the flesh was a living prophecy of the future coming of Christ maybe you never thought about it that way but he in his first coming came to herald his second coming he came to announce, as it were, the coming of the kingdom and the king, which was him. Matthew 4.17 tells us right at the beginning of his ministry, from that time forward he began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, he's the king, and the kingdom has yet to come. But in his first coming, he prepared the world for his second coming. The suffering servant came first to proclaim the glorious king who will come second but the suffering servant and the glorious king are one and the same Jesus. I think that's marvelous. But take another look at the language in verse 7 as written in the NASB that I'm teaching from here. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. Three things I want you to note here in this verse and in the following couple of verses. Number one, God says I will shake all all the nations. And that's a clue as to the timing of this prophecy. Now yes, the Lord has shaken nations past. In fact, his his will basically moves the kings like watercourses. He sets up and deposes rulers. God is God. And he has obviously shaken up kingdoms throughout history. Before the first coming of Messiah, we saw that happen. We saw Egypt shaken. We saw Assyria shaken. Babylon shaken. The Medes and the Persians, they got shaken. Greece came along. Under Alexander the Great looked like it was unstoppable, but then it was shaken up into four different sections. And of those four sections, they eventually were overcome by mighty Rome. But I don't believe that's the shaking that's being talked about right here. If you compare and think about what the other prophets had to say, Daniel, for example, chapter 2, verse 44 said, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Jesus would come along 500 years or so after Daniel and He would express this further shaking as something yet future. Luke 21.10 Jesus said nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be great earthquakes in various places plagues and famines and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven look at the news. ISIS fulfills terrors right there. Earthquakes, signs from the heavens, various plagues. How about the Ebola virus that's out of control right now? I mean, I, we have never lived in a time where so many of these birth pangs, as it were, were happening so frequently and so intensively as we are right now. That shakes me up a little bit. And it should shake us out of the doldrums of our daily lives to realize we are on course here for an epic event in the coming of the King. And Jesus said this was yet future, this shaking of the nations. Point is, Haggai's prophecy goes way beyond the first coming of Jesus. You want more proof? Paul, I believe, writing Hebrews, agrees. He quotes Haggai. As an example of a later fulfillment. He says Hebrews 12:26. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. He's quoting Haggai chapter 2 verse 6. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. So the Bible clearly reveals a final shaking yet to come, and even in the words of Haggai when he says, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, verse 6, the sea also and the dry land, I'm going to shake all the nations. But then it says, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And it's one of those situations where if you're used to the Christmas carol and you come to the NSB and read it, you might not even realize it's the same line. Wait a minute, come desire of nations come is not what this says. It says they will come with the wealth of all nations. And perhaps you, like me, from time to time get frustrated with our translators. Can't you guys just get together and make it all work The NASB translation uh, obviously is different. And so the King James Version implies that the desire of nations will come, whereas the NASB implies that the wealth of all nations will be brought. So which one's right? And why did the NASB mess up my Christmas carols like that? (laughs) They point out that the very next verse, God says the silver is mine and the gold is mine. And using verse 8 for the context, they say it's the nations bringing their wealth to Jerusalem, bringing their wealth to the future glorious temple. Hmm. A temple greater than Solomon's. A temple verified by Ezekiel as being amazing beyond any comparison. The word, that which is desirable, they will come with the wealth of all nations or the desire of all nations come depending on the translation. The word is chenda in the Hebrew and it means that which is desirable or treasured. Well, the desire of all nations is desirable. You know, Jesus is treasured. Absolutely. And yet... The idea of the nations bringing their treasures up to Jerusalem, well, that that makes sense too. So again, is it the wealth of all nations brought in, or is it the desire of nations who comes? Because those are two very unique things. Neither idea is unbiblical. Both work. This is one of those rare instances where I'm not going to pick one over the other. I'm just going to say, hey, sing your carols or read the NASB and be happy. (laughs) Because both of them are biblical concepts, both are doctrinally sound, the nations will bring their wealth to the temple. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 5. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, the wealth of the nations will come to you. Isaiah 60 verse 11. Your gates will be opened continually, speaking of Jerusalem. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. So the wealth of the nations will be brought up to the temple. It fits. It works. It's doctrinally sound. The desire of all nations, however, will also come. And He will be the desire of all nations. And for this, I want to ask you to turn over to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. And I chose to go to Romans 15 because, as you'll see, what Paul does in these few verses is call out four Hebrew passages to express this marvelous idea. We'll start in verse 7 of Romans 15. Paul writes, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Well, that's just a good word right there. If you're having trouble, especially with a Christian brother or sister, trouble accepting them, trouble loving them, trouble showing grace to them, go right here and accept one another as Christ accepted us. How is that? In our flaws? In our sins? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Not cleaned up and looking good and and, and our lives together? No. In our mess. One of the staff said today, I love this, if I didn't have a mess, I wouldn't have a message. It's because of the mess I have a message. Romans 15 verse 8, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is to the Jewish people, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And verse 9, for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. When you see the word Gentiles written, you might as well, in parentheses, write right next to it, nations. Because the Hebrew translation would be nations. And in fact, the next four verses that Paul is going to point out, in each and every one, the word translated here in the Greek, Gentiles, is in the Hebrew, nations. It's goyim, the goy, the nations. Check this out. And for the Gentiles, the nations, to glorify God for His mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to You among the Gentiles, nations. This is Psalm eighteen forty nine, and I will sing Your name. Again, He says, "Rejoice, O nations, with His people." Deuteronomy thirty two, verse forty three. And again, praise the Lord, all you nations. Psalm one seventeen, verse one, and let all the peoples praise Him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the nations, in him shall the nations hope. Isaiah 11, verse 10. So you tell me, will the desire of nations come? Absolutely. Paul takes from the Hebrew prophets and declares Christ, the desire of nations. So, it's wonderful. You can take it either way. The nations are going to bring their wealth in and the desire of nations will come and you can read the NASB or the King James and Jesus will be equally pleased, I believe. The servant messenger of the kingdom who came to proclaim Christ the glorious king of that kingdom. Now notice this amazing statement back in Haggai verse 7 of chapter 2. I will shake all the nations. They will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory. I will fill this house with glory. In verse 8, he says, And the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Okay, with all that in mind, go back to the original question I asked. Why didn't the Lord provide for the second temple to be as glorious as the first? Why was the second temple so humble by comparison? And I believe it's because in the second temple, not not Herod's ostentatious religious offering, but in Zerubbabel's second temple, that humble structure, we see Jesus in His first coming. God would limit the temple, the second temple, as a portrait of the humble beginning, the humble servant, His Son Jesus, coming into the world. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But He was speaking of the temple of His body. Which much more resembled the temple that Zerubbabel built than the ugly thing that Herod built. Ugly? I thought it was glorious. Gold covered and white with marble. And be- yeah, well, it was beautiful from man's perspective. But it was all false religion, it was all external, it was Herod trying to buy his way into the hearts of the Jewish people. And it was Pharisees and priests and scribes of the day looking on the marvel of their temple and thinking that they were untouchable yet again. But Zerubbabel's temple, that humble structure, much more like Jesus in His first coming, The first temple, in all its Solomonic glory, we could say pictures Christ in His second coming. And so it's an interesting parallel there. The first temple, Christ in His second coming. The second temple, Christ in His first coming. And note what God says, I will fill this house with glory. This house, the temple of His body, the house that that carried Jesus through those 33 years, I'm going to fill this with glory. God and man, man and God, walking in the person of Jesus Christ. But he also says, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Think that through. Christ was born humbly in a manger, meek in human flesh, yet He was filled with glory. So much that it could not be held down in the transfiguration. He, for a moment there, was seen in His glory by the apostles. Which is why John said, we saw His glory glorious of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth God among us but we also know at least from a human perspective the latter glory of Christ will be astounded uninhibited by human flesh that we will look at him and we will be blown away we'll see him as he is John did Not just on the Mount of Transfiguration, but in the Revelation, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Revelation 1, verse 12. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire." His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In His right hand He held seven stars. Anyone try to do that? It's not easy. Seven stars. And out of His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Come, desire of nations, come. And in His second coming He will be absolutely 100% glorious. Glorious. Kinda of like the first temple. And yet the second like him in his first coming. Message number four. Message number four picks up now in verse ten. And I'm sure there are more truths that you can mine. And I would encourage you, I always would encourage you to go back and reread and rethink what we've talked about. Not just reading ahead, but but reading back, because you will find things that I completely missed. The Lord's going to point out stuff show you things, reveal things, it's always wise to go back and rethink what we've already studied. But message number four going on, in verse 10, message number four is what I would call the cause and effect. The cause and effect. Verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. So this is now Kislev, the November-December time frame. Still that same year, 520 B.C. And the word came to Haggai the prophet from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, there he is again, Ask now for the priest, the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold or in the wing, literally, of his garment, and and he touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? Okay, so the question is if you've got something holy that you're hanging on to and it happens to rub up against some other object or food or item will that object or food or item automatically become holy and the priests answered no which is you know, not a typical answer for a lawyer
1: <laughs> one word
0: no I'm like I want my money back because that's really not a full can you at least write a thousand page document to explain what you mean no, it won't become holy. Verse 13, Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priests answered, It will become unclean. What's going on here? Well, Deuteronomy 17 verses 8 and 9 prescribed the priests as the legal minds of the day. They were the lawyers. They were the legal think tank because Torah was the law. And so the priest knew the law, and if questions of the law came up, or if there were legal issues, it was all bound to Torah. So you go to the priest, you ask the priest. This is interesting, because Haggai goes to the priest for this legal counsel, and there are two kind of obvious things. If you're carrying something holy, and you bump something, or someone, or some item, does it become holy? Of course not. But if you are unholy, if you are unclean, and you touch someone or something or some item, it does become unclean. And what that tells us is that sin is transferable, righteousness is not. Sin is easily transferable. Think about it. If I'm sick, can I give it to you? Sure. If I'm well, can I give it to you? Hey, I'm feeling pretty good today. Come on, hang out with me. Maybe you'll get well too. It doesn't work that way. Illness and disease easily transfer. Wellness does not. And the same is sin. Same is true with, with sin and righteousness. And then verse 14, Haggai said, So is this people. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is un. Clean. God's very serious, very simple, but very serious point to the people is that if you are unclean, your ritual sacrifices cannot make you holy. You can't just become holy because you do a holy thing. Holiness is not transferable. Righteousness doesn't rub off. Growing up in a Christian home doesn't coat you with anti-sin coding. It just makes sin slide right off. Going to church does not transmit holiness to you. Hey, it's a good thing being raised in a Christian home. Praise the Lord if you were. That's a good thing. Being around righteousness again, a good thing. But none of this transmits holiness. Hanging out with Christians doesn't wash away sin. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? The blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But what God is pointing out here, something that God knows that the people have yet to understand, and that's that only the broken and the contrite of heart will come to Jesus for cleansing. Only those who are repentant are going to come. The blood will cleanse anybody. As John wrote, His blood which is the propitiation for the whole world, if you'll have it, if you'll come to Him for it, which is such a simple act. David understood this. Psalm 51 verse 16, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. By your favor, David prays, do good to Zion. And check this out, he also says, build the walls of Jerusalem. It's almost prophetic. Verse 15, But now, do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time, when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would be only ten. And when one came to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would only be twenty. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord." The harvest of grain, the grain silos, if you will, were depleted. They were down 50% of what should have been there, what would have been there otherwise. Their production of wine was evaporating before their very eyes. It was down 60%. They come to the vats to draw, and where'd the wine go? Of course, husbands and wives are looking at each other. God is once again pointing out the cause And the effect of their disobedience. And the effect was obvious. But the people were either ignorant of or they were ignoring the cause. The cause for their lack of production in their lives. Their lack of fruit in their lives. The cause was the Lord trying to get their attention. And as we've talked about many times recently, especially going through the Minor Prophets, what is God doing in the world today, in America today, in Ocarver and Anacortes today, in the church today? What's He doing to get our attention that we're ignoring? I really wonder how many events, how many happenings are going on all around us and we're just like, hey! you know, ignorant of them. And I really believe for for you, and I know y'all, for this fellowship, I really believe if we're missing something, we're just ignorant. No offense. Put myself at the top of that ignorant heap. I don't think we're intentionally ignoring the Lord, but I do think we've all grown up in a culture that is ignorant of the hand of God actually at work in this land. And He's at work today and things are happening. Why are they happening? The Lord would get our attention. There is a cause and effect to what's going on. And what He's telling them in this message is no amount of your ritual sacrifice is going to fix the problem. They're still going up to the altar. Remember when they first came back to the land, the altar was built on the Temple Mount. Before they even laid the foundation, they built the altar and started the sacrifices and the festivals and wonderful things, you know? Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. And they stopped building the temple. But they kept going up to the altar. They were given their sacrifices. They were faithful in that. And the Lord's like, you're wasting your time. You're coming up to sacrifice, but the job is unfinished. You were not productive. Now read on, verse 18. Do consider... God is such a gentleman. <laughs> Do consider... From this day onward, or upward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. Now stop right there. Wait a minute. When was the temple founded, the second temple? Wouldn't that be the day they laid the foundation? But but he says in verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, which is that day, the, the month of Kislev. It's when that message came. Consider from this day, and then he said, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded. Well, but that was 16 years earlier. Which day is it, Lord? I I don't understand. The Lord appears to be connecting the day of the foundation being laid with the day of this message coming and that the 16 years in between is not counted against them. The 16 years in between didn't happen as far as the Lord is concerned. Consider from this day and the founding of the temple, forget about the past. Let's just let that stuff go. Let's forget those 16 years. Okay, unfaithful, you weren't with me, you were confused. And of course, in those 16 years, there was no seed in the barn, and the vine, and the fig tree, and the pomegranate, and the olive tree have borne no fruit. But that's what has been. He connects the two days as one day. Now, I can't just ignore the 16 years, so hang with me just for a second. <laughs> Because for us practically, looking at the history, it was an unproductive 16 years. It was 16 years that didn't work. And it was unproductive from the day they stopped doing the Lord's work all the way up to this present day in the Scripture. Do you want to be productive and successful and fruitful in life? Then be about the Father's business. Be about the work of the Lord. Do what God would have you do, not what you think is important to do. Ask the Lord, is this your will for my life? Is this the path I should be walking according to your design, not according to mine? Is it His interests? Because we are never more productive, and I say this as an absolute matter of fact, we are never more productive than when we are about the work of the Lord. And we are never less productive than we are all about when we're all about our own selves. God says, "You want to be fruitful? Be about my business." As twelve-year-old Jesus said to Mary and Joe in the temple that day, Luke two forty-nine. Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's? And the NASB adds house. The King James says be about my Father's business. What it really says there in the Greek, did you not know that I had to be about my Father? My Father's will, my Father's ways, in my Father's person. I have to be where my Father is, is what Jesus was saying. And what about you? What about me? Luke 11, 27 says one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and she said to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that wish, which you nursed. They said stuff like that in those days. <laughs> I'd get slapped if I said that. <laughs> but Jesus said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. Now... <laughs> understand, if Jesus had ever had the opportunity to venerate Mary, it was right then. Oh yes, blessed be the virgin. He didn't say that. He esteemed those who hear and do the word. He said, those are the ones who are blessed. That's where your blessing should go. And so the Lord through Haggai draws this direct line from their productivity to their faithfulness. And now, on this day, as the message comes, He already knows they're going to respond. That's what's beautiful about the Lord. When He calls you something, He already knows what your response is, and He's already ready to bless your faith. Even before you know you have the faith, He's all ready to go. Because He knows your faith is going to show up. I love that about God. And our merciful God says at the end of verse 19, yet from this day on I will bless. I'm going to bless you. From the day of the founding of the temple... This very day, right now, now we're good to go. And again, it would be five years and the temple would be built. Not 21 years, five years. From that day forward, they would get to work. And God overlooks the past 16 years as if the day founding was this day, and He begins to bless. But there's also something future embedded in this promise, gang. This whole idea in verse 19 of the seed still in the barn... Including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree that had not borne fruit. Listen to what God says through Zechariah. Remember, a contemporary of Haggai, and we'll get to him very shortly. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 11 I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed of The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. And the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. That's beautiful. There's going to be plenty of seed for the planting. Their return to faith elicited God's desire to bless. And that's the way it works, gang. He loves faith. God gets excited about faith. Well, that, that sounds a little too personal, Rick. Hey, Jesus got excited when he saw faith. He was thrilled when he saw the faith of the Roman centurion. He, he was beside himself when he saw the faith of the Syrophoenician woman. And he wanted to bless. And there is that connection. My faith thrills the Lord. And I want you also to notice that he said, From this day on I will bless. They hadn't done anything yet. They were standing there, mouths open, listening to the message. And Haggai says, And God's ready to bless you. Well, let's get to work. Because he's going to bless us. And that's always the pattern the blessing precedes the work. The blessing of the Lord. Precedes us getting to work. It's the motivation for the work. And not the other way around. The work isn't, we're not motivated to work hoping we get the blessing. We recognize the blessing of his grace, and it causes us just to want to put our hands to the work. And the labor is joyful. It's wonderful. Because I've already been blessed. James chapter 2, verse 14, James explains this so well. Tragically people in the church over the years have used it as a point of debate. It was never meant to be. James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? And James says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And so you got the works camp and you got the faith camp. And James is like, you're both missing it! You're doing the work because you have the faith. The two are completely connected. This is not a faith that denies God's grace. It's a faith that embraces God's grace. That's why I get to the work. That's why I put my hands to the plow. James says, don't tell me about your faith. Show me! You say you believe? Fantastic. So do the demons and they shudder. I can tell you who is faithful simply by what I see him doing. Leroy, I'm going to embarrass you just for a second. I know Leroy has faith in God and faith that God is doing something with this new building. Why? Because he was over there tiling again today. And by the way, I've got some work in my house. I need you to come (laughs) But it's it's faith. It it wasn't a drudgery. It's not a burden. It's like, oh, got to go tile the new church. Yeah, they're asking me to. Whatever. Guess I'll prove, you know, what I have to prove. No, it's, oh, I'd love to do that. And can I do more? And that's the attitude. That's the heart. The faith that is, that is so excited and so willing to work because we've already received grace. We already have the reward. So run. Run with anticipation. By the way, one other thing, when I first read this, this this first sentence of verse nineteen really jumped out at me. Is the seed still in the barn? I read that out loud as I often do as I'm going through a passage. I read, Is the seed still in the barn? And loud and clear I heard the Lord. No. What do you mean, Lord? And then I had to go reread this because the context and what he was saying to the people is different than what he was saying to me. Is the seed still in the barn? Bridge Fellowship, hear me loud and clear. The seed is no longer in this barn. It's over there. By the way, it's not just seeds sitting in a barn. That is a barn to receive a harvest. This was a barn that God filled with seed. This is a barn that God began planting 11 years ago. He began dropping seed in people's hearts. All of you are the produce of that and the result of that. You have been seeded. By the Word, seated by the worship, seated by the work of the Holy Spirit. And now God's saying, time to get the seed out of the barn. There's not going to be any here. I'm not saying that the Gilmores don't have many more years of ministry on this property, if God so wills it. What I'm saying is for the Bridge Christian Fellowship, the seed has left the building. (laughs) And we're not going over there to store up more seed. We are going over there to receive a harvest. Let that be in your prayers and on your hearts, in your relationships, in your conversations. We go to receive a harvest. I believe that's the calling of the Lord on us now. Alright, the last message of Haggai, which came later that same day, is the only one of the five messages that is not to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of this people. It's far more personal than that. It is just... To Zerubbabel. A message particularly for him, message number five, if you're jotting these down, is what I would call the credential of Zerubbabel. The credential of Zerubbabel. Verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. Stop right there. Did you hear my my, uh, mistake? Let me read it again. Verse 21 I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. You might want to take a pen and mark out the S because it is not in the plural. It's in the singular. I am going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. The word is kisse in the Hebrew. It is in the singular, and it is not multiple thrones that God has to overthrow. It is one throne. The throne of the nations. God from the beginning of creation has only ever allowed one throne over planet earth, one ruler, if you will, over planet earth. He started by giving it to Adam. I want you to rule over the fishes and the birds and the animals and the beasts of the earth. I want you to rule over it and to be and to be productive, be fruitful and multiply. You are the ruler, Adam. And Adam and Eve blew it. And they lost the farm in the garden. Booted out, the throne was from that point forward usurped by Satan, and he has been on it ever since. The throne of nations, singular. He is the current occupant, but the Word tells us clearly it will be replaced, that throne, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 2, verse 6, the Lord says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm one ten verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. First Corinthians fifteen twenty-four, Paul says, Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. And Revelation eleven fifteen tells us the seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And then in the latter half of the tribulation, at that point, the throne of Satan will be thrown down. And he will not have his throne. And he will rail... Bible tells us he will go nuts and he will go off to make war with anybody he can, take out as many people as he can because he knows his time is short. but from that point forward, Satan is dethroned. And then at the culmination of the Battle of Har Megiddo, Jesus will come exerting power and control over all the earth and will establish his throne there from Jerusalem. because this planet can only ever have one throne, the throne of Nations. In verse 23, the message goes on. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What? That's That's ridiculously big. What in the world can that possibly mean? Zechariah, actually, Zechariah is going to take this further. As he talks about Zerubbabel, and you hear messages through the prophet Zechariah who continues on after Haggai speaking messages to the people and to Zerubbabel and to Joshua the high priest. But here's the thing to know and to understand, and it's absolutely marvelous. God says, Zerubbabel will be like a signet ring. What does that mean? The, Greek, the Hebrew word for signet ring is hotam. Chotam means either a ring or a cylinder that was sometimes worn around the neck that would be pressed into hot wax to set a seal. I set you like a seal, we sang. A ring would be set as a seal. When Solomon was having the first temple built and the wood from Hiram up in, in the north would be brought down, they would seal. They would set his seal in hot wax on the wood they'd press it in there the seal of Solomon would be on that wood and they knew it belonged to Solomon and had to go down and be brought up to Jerusalem and that's how they did business there's a mark of identification it might be on a letter it could be on important papers it could be on purchases you know if you're buying a cart from a friend you'd set your seal on the cart showing that it, it belonged now to you now think back to where we began tonight Prophecy often first comes in the form of a sign, a signal, a servant, or in this case a signet ring. Zerubbabel will be a signet ring. What does that mean? Zerubbabel, God says, I'm going to make you my identifying mark. Zerubbabel was the identifying is the identifying mark or an identifying mark of the Messiah. How so the signet ring was so important in the ancient world you did not take it off this was this was life lock okay this was this was your credit right here you lose this anybody could take it and use it anywhere and so you didn't take it off if you had a a signet cylinder that, that hung around your neck you protected that with your life because that was your power to buy and sell That was your mark of identification. You kept it close to you, always close to you. The Song of Songs says, put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as severe as Sheol, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. What a beautiful picture. That's what the Lord says to you, says to me, I want you like a seal on my heart. I want to keep you that close so that nobody will ever take you from me. And God says, Zerubbabel, I'm setting you up as a signet ring, as that seal. Zerubbabel would somehow be held that closely to the Lord. Inseparable somehow from the Lord. How does that work? Zerubbabel was a descendant in the direct line of David. Which is marvelous because that means, makes him a legitimate governor of the returning exiles. He actually could have risen to the throne. He was in that line of Judah. But there's more. You see, after the book of Zechariah, in Scripture, we will only hear Zerubbabel's name two more times. Just twice. Twice. But the use of his name both times is in the exact same context, get this, as a credential of the coming Christ, as an identifier of the coming Messiah. Again, Rick, how so? I'm leading you guys along here on purpose. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel is the very last person to stand. Both in the genetic bloodline of Mary and in the official legal line of Joseph in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He is the identifying mark in Jesus' genealogy that Jesus is the Messiah. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 1 verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Now that is the the Joseph line. Luke 3.27 The son of Joanan, The son of Risa The son of Zerubbabel The son of Shealtiel The son of Neri That is the, the Mary line One is the Solomonic line The other one is the Natonic line Or the line of Nathan Both sons of David Zerubbabel's name is in both lines How? I mean that, that just kind of seems weird Understand that what this means is that Zerubbabel is inseparably, inseparably bound to the Messiah. He is the signet ring of Messiah because he's in both bloodlines coming up to the birth of Jesus. And I can't fully explain to you how that's possible because the Bible doesn't tell us. I, I can tell you that 1 Chronicles 3.19 makes it clear that Shealtiel, his father, is actually his grandfather. And that there's something in between Shealtiel who had sons and then Zerubbabel is born somewhere in there as grandson of Shealtiel. On one of the two lines, he's blood-born. On the other line, most likely, and again we have no specific scripture pointing to this, but the only thing we can do is guess, he must have been adopted into the other line. So that his name is blood right in one line and adopted into the next. But his name, because God proclaimed it would be, shows up in both genealogical lines leading up to the Messiah. You're a signet ring for me. You are a sign, a symbol. You are a servant of the coming Messiah. And gang, what's amazing about this is Zerubbabel's greatest contribution in all of history is not as the builder of the second temple. And it is not as the, the governor of the exiles. His greatest contribution is Zerubbabel as a signet ring of the Christ, an identifying credential of the coming Messiah. Who knew? How about you? Will your contribution in this life, in this world, what, what will you be known for? Will it be you're a builder? A leader of people, a governor of sorts? How about simply being known as an identifier of Jesus Christ? And in that way, you and I can be just like Zerubbabel, signet rings of the Lord, people whose lives are about identifying Jesus for those who are lost. Identifying Jesus. That's our calling. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul writes, In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. May we, like Zerubbabel, identify Jesus in this world. Amen. Amen. Let's bow and pray. Lord Jesus, what a wonder You are. Father, how immaculately You laid all of this out. And once again, I am stunned to silence before the the power of Your prophecy. That somehow You worked it out for this man to stand on both lines, to be named in both places, the last one named truly an identifying mark of Messiah and we praise you for this we thank you for revealing it to us this night and we humbly ask Lord would you give us that same task as you gave Zerubbabel give us voice to the Christ make us Lord identifiers of Jesus in this lost world May we be heard even as we speak Your name, Lord Jesus. I ask for opportunity, divine appointments, relationships, Father, through which we can speak the truth, through which we can talk about Jesus. And it's You we honor tonight. And we thank You for Your Word, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.